Hey folks, and welcome to this week's podcast. We are together once again because a guy who was a guest on the program has passed away. In this case, it is Hal Blaine, who died March 11th at the age of 90. I guess it's not a surprise, but it still somehow comes as a shock. And I guess mostly we deal in these interviews with guys who did their work in the 60s or 70s or 80s or a while ago, so... Uh, I guess they're all getting older now, but it never fails to somehow shock, especially a guy like Hal Blaine, partly because his music is everywhere. He is so prolific, and his ratio of great stuff is so incredibly high. Perhaps you know this, but he played on six records that won the Grammy Award for Record of the Year in a row. From 1966 to 71, he is the drummer on the record that won Grammy of the Year. That is an incredible string. You know, and he is the thread, right, between all of these records that were the best record of the year. No one will ever match that sort of record. Uh, The breadth of people he played with, the breadth of people he... These are all people he had number one hits with. Tommy Rowe, Simon and Garfunkel, Fifth Dimension, The Carpenters, Neil Diamond, Partridge Family, Cher, The Carpenters, did I say them? Captain Tennille, The Association, The Supremes, Johnny Rivers, Frank Sinatra, Mamas and the Papas, Barry McGuire, The Birds, Gary Lewis, Lorne Green, Dean Martin, The Beach Boys, Jan and Dean... The Crystals, all of these number one hit records in the real world. Uh, He was a sweet guy, a funny guy. Once you got to know him, he would send you, he would email you, quote unquote, jokes, uh, which is, you know, like getting great jokes from your extra grandfather or something. Uh, Just great guy. Never heard a bad word about him. You know, a leader in the studio. Fantastic. Uh, This is from June 2007. It's me and Hal Blaine. All right, Hal Blaine, welcome to WFMU. How are you? Thanks very much. I'm just fine. How are you guys doing? We're doing terrific. Uh, you've got 40 number one singles, 150 songs that made the top 10. That's that, You're blowing my mind. What's going on with that? Well, there's actually over 300 that made the top 100. I was talking to some friends last night over dinner, and uh, they wondered the same thing. How in the world did you ever do it so often? And You know, I just lived, all of us just lived in the studios. We were... We were nightclub, you know, musicians who were luckily making, a, you know, 90, 100 bucks a week in those days. And all of a sudden we fell into the studios. It was like like falling into a vat of chocolate. <laughs> well, yeah, it really, just the sheer numbers of hits that you play on really it speaks louder than anything. But let's go back to the beginning. You were born in uh, Massachusetts, grew up in Connecticut. What was your exposure to music as a kid? Fortunately, when I was going to, to school in Connecticut, I was exposed, fortunately, all the kids were exposed to to symphonies and ballet and, and theater, and uh, we had a beautiful theater in Hartford, in, in uh, Hartford, that the, uh, it was part of the school curriculum, I guess, was taking the children, and I was just getting hooked on music. Uh, and while I was doing that, uh, my dad used to take me down to the State Theater in Hartford, where all the bands were playing and all the burlesque acts and, and singers and dancers. And there's hardly anyone I didn't see when I was a youngster, from you know Buddy Rich to Frank Sinatra to Gene Krupa. So when those guys passed through towns, and and that's kind of did you think at a young age maybe that's what I'm going to do with my life? Well, you know, I wanted, I knew that I wanted to be a drummer very young. I knew it about probably nine or ten years old. 
I wanted to be a drummer. And how'd you get your first set of drums? Well, you know, my sister, may she rest in peace, uh, bought me my first little set of drums. She was a she was a, a secretary at a place, and she bought a set of drums from a guy for fifty two dollars, and she paid him a dollar a week for a year. Oh man, never forgot that. And uh, when I grew up, I got her son, who's a fine drummer, Michael. His name is also Michael. I got, I gave Michael a set of my drums. It's probably worth fifty grand today. <laughs> They're beautiful, beautiful drums, that, and he plays on occasion. And were you a natural? When did you just sit down? And were you Hal Blaine as we know it? You know, I was, I was like any kid who became interested and then dedicated. And I just started working with sticks. And I started on pillows, and the, my first drumsticks were were the the dowling out of the back of a rocking chair that my mom had. <laughs> I'm sure she and, was. You know, that. well, that's it's just if you're going to be dedicated, you will know eventually because all you want to do is play. Then it goes to to teachers, marching bands, on and on and on and on, school school bands. And uh, before you know it, uh, you're playing. You're really playing with bands and so forth, and you realize that you're going to be a musician. And when I got out of the service, came home from Korea, went to Chicago, took my GI Bill, studied three years with Gene Krupa's teacher. And uh, when I left there, well, there were you know Louis Belson was there, great drummer, Buddy Harmon from Nashville, great drummer. There were over 500 drummers going to that school. So that's when, when it's dedication. But I try to tell, when I do a clinic on occasion, I try to tell mothers, don't buy them a set of drums because they're going to wind up in a garage. You get, must start them out with just a, a, a practice pad. And if they, are, if they really like it, they'll be playing a lot. When their hands get used to it, then you get them a little snare drum. My main advice is don't let them play the drums. Get them on a piano, get them on a guitar, get them on a, on a musical instrument where they can write some songs, where they can grow up and be publishers and get the lion's share of the music business. <laughs> uh, so you can read music. You think that's important to what made you so successful in the studio? Well, I was just so dedicated, and I think eventually the study of music, harmony, arranging, sight reading, sight singing, all the percussion instruments, the timpanis, the marimbas, the mallets. Uh, it makes you, you know, full-blown and, 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 and uh, completely efficient and proficient in what you're doing. And, you know, the word gets around pretty quick. I mean, when we had our little wrecking crew, as it were, um, we were known as rock and roll guys. Now, rock and roll was a new genre, but to us... We had been playing rhythm and blues, and it was just, for drummers. It's just a backbeat. Uh, if you listen to music from the beginning of time, if there's a drummer on there, he'll be playing a backbeat, keeping a beat. And when I eventually got with the so the so-called wrecking crew that we were, and that's a funny story. The way we were got to be called the wrecking crew is because all the Hollywood musicians were these guys in three-piece suits that sat quietly and did all the movies with one or two microphones, and all of a sudden, you know, these kids came along, like myself, wearing Levi's and T-shirts, and everybody smoked cigarettes in those days. It was a mess. <laughs> and, the, and the older musicians were... 
started to say, these kids are going to wreck the business. Mm. Just as we look at a lot of these kids today with the, the rap, and it's just another genre. It's to, personally, it's not music to me, but it's their thing, and it's going to be until something else comes along. Mm. And so finally, these the people were saying, these kids are going to wreck the business. I started calling us the wrecking crew, and my secretary, I started contracting musicians and it was always the wrecking crew i would call my secretary arlen and say honey uh get the crew for you know this certain day or afternoon whatever and, uh, and that's the way it was done and everybody most of the musicians belonged to that same answering service how did you get from working in nightclubs as still a really young guy how did you break into that session world well you know it was a very strange thing but i was working with, and I won't go to the very beginning, but I was working with a, a jazz trio at the Garden of Allah in Hollywood, a very famous hotel in those days. There was nothing but movie stars in the audience. And it was a great fun job. And some guy came in, uh, one of these, I call them nose-over guys, uh, a wannabe mafioso. Okay. And uh, he said, hey, kid, uh, I need a drummer for, uh, for an audition for a kid. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, I got a kid. He's going to get signed by a big record company, and and, and I, he needs a drummer. He's coming in from Texas. Texas. And I said, what kind of music? He said, rock and roll. I said, you know, I really don't play rock and roll. He said, I've been watching you for a couple nights here. You could play anything. So he's, I said, you know, I'm not really interested in that. And I was making about 100 a week, and he said, I tell you what, I give you 75 bucks, it'll take you 10 minutes. I said, tell me where and when. <laughs> and I went in and it turned out that it was the young man, gorgeous young man by the name of Tommy Sands. And Tommy in those days became just a teenage idol, uh, just below Elvis, really. In fact, uh, Colonel Parker was, was managing uh, Tommy Sands, and that's how I happened to happened to not be a stranger when it when I started working with Elvis. So, you know, it was almost nepotism. I mean, it was, it went from producer to producer, from studio to studio, and before you know it, everybody, before you knew it, everybody wanted the wrecking crew. Yeah, it seems like in that situation when you're trying to cut, you know, two hit records or three hit records in a three-hour session, you really can't afford guys who aren't going to be good, you know? That's the whole thing. You know, all of the guys... With the exception of Glenn Campbell, all of the guys were great readers. They were dedicated musicians. They had studied. They had graduated from music schools. We just didn't look the part. So Glenn couldn't read music, but somehow he was the exception. Uh, he, he was just talented enough to, to fit in? Glenn was a guy that played such wild solos that were actually rockabilly or country or western, and they fit into the rock and roll genre. And, and although he couldn't really read music note for note, he could read chord charts. You know, he knew that this was a certain chord, that was a certain chord. But we used to have a guy that would stand there for solos, and he'd look at him and say, now. <laughs> and Glenn would play the wildest off-the-wall solos, and then he'd say, okay, stop. And, <laughs> I mean, Glenn became so famous... And, of course, Glenn started out, even before we, we got studio work, Glenn was a singer, and we were working all these country dumps, like the, the famous Palomino Club in North Hollywood and 
the, the crossbow club in the valley and all the places around L.A. that paid nothing, that you practically had to be behind chicken wire because they were country joints that they're throwing beer bottles at you in those days. And uh, we just naturally became family. There's a great moment. Uh, there's a tape of some Beach Boys session work, and you guys are trying to cut Dance, 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 and the intro to that song is a pretty complicated little figure. And uh, it sounds like uh, Glenn Campbell's playing the 12-string guitar, and he's and he's blowing the, the take a few times in a row, and you can hear uh, Hal Blaine say, should we call Tommy Tedesco? <laughs> <laughs> and then everybody cracks up. Uh, you know, sure, just putting him on. It sounds like those sessions were a lot of fun. You know, half of my... Being where I was in popularity was because I had a great sense of humor. And I went in, when I went in, it was for business. Because I used to tell all the guys, you know, this is, you know, you were making $100 a week, mate. Now you're making 1000 a day. Now you're feeding your family, you're buying homes, you're buying cars, you're buying the toys you want. you got to remember, if you smile, you stay around a while. If you pout... You're out. All right, let's talk about four four giants that you played with. Sinatra, Elvis, Brian Wilson, Phil Spector. Tell me first about Frank Sinatra. What was it like walking in the room with Frank Sinatra? Well, first of all, I had originally met Frank Sinatra on the telephone back in the late 50s when his daughter, Nancy, was about to marry Tommy Sands. And Tommy, of course, was my boss at the time. I was sort of pseudo-conducting and playing drums for Tommy. And I met Frank on the phone, and it was just one of those things that to watch the kids, take care of them, sign my name for anything, always leave a good tip, that type of thing. Uh-huh. It was wonderful. Uh, so you... I was sort of like family because I was very close to Big Nancy. Even though they were divorced, it was as if they were still married. Frank was taking care of everybody. The first time I walked into a Frank Sinatra session, I mean, it was like old homework. In 1964, he had just started Reprise Records that became an arm of Warner Brothers. And Frank, in his brilliance, was signing all of his cronies from, you know, the whole Rat Pack that we did everybody from Las Vegas, starting with Louie and Keeley, and it just goes on and on and on. But then... Tommy and Nancy, you know, you know, it was a Hollywood divorce, a marriage. Ten minutes later, they were divorced. <laughs> and then Nancy decided, and she was just a kid, about 16, 17. A couple of years later, she decided she wanted to sing. So she called me. She always called me her drummer man. And I just started, you know, playing drums. I played over, 30, over uh, 33 years with Nancy. Including these boots are made for walking. Oh, uh, absolutely. Number one yeah. and something stupid. They're duet. Your Frank Sinatra, two songs you play on, uh, Strangers in the Night and That's Life. Uh, those are both pretty heavy records. Uh, what great, was, great, great. Yeah, just great amazing. Records. Uh, that's, Strangers in the Night was really Frank's comeback uh, after Capital because Capital was, was going to drop him. He just wasn't selling records anymore. And he, when he started Reprise Records and Nancy talked him into the wrecking crew, bang, we did Strangers in the Night. It went to number one. It was Frank's first and only single gold record. Mm, amazing. I mean, he had had gold records in the past selling multi-millions, but he never had a number one single that was uh, gold. 
And that's Life Went to Number Four. Uh, I assume Frank was singing live and the whole thing was just Absolutely. Cut. Yeah, it must have been very exciting. It was live. It was exciting. I mean, I could take an hour here to tell you about the sessions because they were absolutely wonderful. Uh, let's talk about Elvis Presley, another giant guy. Was he around, or were these things where you just cut the tracks in Elvis? No, he was always with us. Elvis was really a terrific guy. He had he had learned what he was going to sing on the session that day. And this one, you know, went through a lot of movies. My God, I punch it up. I got 70 or, 80, 70 or 80 songs that I did with Elvis. He was always prepared. He was always straight and sober. There were no drugs. There were no pills. He just got out of the service. That's another real long story. He, uh, Elvis did not like strangers around him, and that's how I kind of kind of got pushed into the thing because Buddy Harmon was always there from Nashville who did records with him. D.J. Fontana, his original drummer. Uh, Bernie Madison from Paramount Pictures. There were, you know, all kinds of drummers that were there. But fortunately, I got chosen because Elvis knew of my background. He knew the hit records I made, plus the country records that I made, and he was very comfortable. Do you play on Little Less Conversation? Oh, yes. That was a big hit recently. Not that long ago, but... Uh, yeah, they just remixed it. Amazing track there. Just great. Absolutely. That's one of the shows that we did at his comeback special, the 68 comeback special. Right. And that's where they lifted that from. Um, so anyway, that's the story of Elvis. He was a he was a gentleman, like they all say. He was a southern gentleman. Now, we didn't know what he was doing when he left the studio and went to Bel Air and was shooting out television sets <laughs> and stuff like that. And that was his business, you know. I mean, it's, it's nobody's business but his. Yeah. And the paparazzi or the or the, the rags that were writing about it. Yeah, Let, let's but, talk about Brian Wilson. Uh, you must have started working him when he was just a young kid and seen right. seen him blossom. That must have been amazing, Absolutely. amazing thing to watch. Brian was a terrific guy. Uh, he had everything he had was in his head. He listened. I mean, he he would sing a song. He sat at the piano and play a song and sing it for us and say, "Do your thing." And it was the same kind of thing. We would we would get what we called chord charts, and we would mark. And, it, you know, it's just a road map of where you begin, where you end, and all the stops in between. And uh, Brian knew exactly what he wanted. He was way ahead of his time, of course, and, and the, the word genius is kicked around. He was a genius. Uh, if genius means, you know, a youngster with all that knowledge, like a prodigy or something, and his, you know, Dennis was not really a drummer. Brian bought him, the family bought him a dr set of drums so that they could have a band. Right. And they did that when the when the family was on vacation. They didn't even know it was done. They took the grocery money or something <laughs> bought a set of drums. Anyway, Brian was a sweetheart, a wonderful man to this day, and thank God he's doing well. He's the only original, really original Beach Boy that's left. He's the last of the Wilsons. Yeah, I've seen his band recently, and they're fantastic. Have you seen Absolutely. Uh, oh, absolutely. They really do the music justice, and it, it is very complicated music. The Beatles. Some, of, some of it was very complicated, mm -hmm. and some of it was the things that he gave us carte blanche to do, you know, and he'd come up with funny sounds, and he wanted them, and he listened to them and said, yeah, I love it, and let's do it. Let's talk about Phil Spector. Uh, 
What was it like working with Phil Spector? Is it, was he a maniac? <laughs> he was not a maniac. You know, everyone talks about the maniacal Phil Spector. Yeah. He was he was a producer that somehow, and the word got around that he knew just how to sprinkle it that magic fairy dust on his records, and they were all hits. And it started out with us, with with uh, Be My Baby and all of those records we were doing. But Phil was another guy. You know, I spent three hours with L.A. detectives here right after the murder. Oh, really? And, of course, we all know it was a murder. It was one of those things. He may not have put in, put in her mouth and pulled the trigger, but we kind of, we all know that Phil told us a completely sideways story. And we knew. Once forensics came in, once we knew exactly what happened, because he'd been doing that with women for a lot of years. Unfortunately, I'm sure he didn't mean to kill this beautiful woman, but I think it was an accident, and it was an accidental the gun went off accidentally. And they know it was his gun. He had something like 14 guns in the house. And he's known for this. This is his M.O., uh, you know, getting ladies in the house. And he's just the sweetest guy in the world when, you, when he wants to be sweet. When he wants to be Napoleon, and a lot of gentlemen with very small stature are that way. They become Napoleonic, and they want to, you know, what they say is is uh, the gospel. I remember when Phil did the, um, he got a part in a movie that we, we all laughed about. He got a part in Easy Street, or Easy Rider, and he was driving his white Rolls Royce, and he played the part of a drug dealer. And he had like three seconds on film, if that. And he told everyone he was going to get an Academy Award for that. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's outrageous. Yeah. But that was Phil. Huh. Right after the murder, and I started to say, I call it murder, because he was there, he was the only one there, and everybody knows. You know, he came out and said, I killed somebody, there was blood all over him. Tried to hide it all, tried to wash her face, tried to wash the blood off of the walls, on and on and on. I mean, we know that if he didn't mean to do it, it was an accident, and then he tried to cover it up. And I think that he will get nailed in this in this particular instance. But he's got all these lawyers. Now, my daughter, Michelle Blaine, that you hear through a lot of this testimony, that's my daughter. She was his right arm mm. for four years. And... Uh, even Michelle. I mean, he told us, I received an award from L.A. Weekly, a Lifetime Achievement Award, a big party at the Henry Fonda Theater in Hollywood, and Phil was there. This was this got to be 10 days after this unfortunate murder. And Phil came up to me sitting at the table and gave me a big kiss on the mouth, on the lips. <laughs> it was unbelievable. But this is Phil. I mean, the sweetheart of a guy, he'll love you to death. And I guess all of his business transactions, he was, you know, while he was loving people, he was stabbing them in the back. Yeah, that's, that's... And he was known as an outrageous businessman. And it's unfortunate, but that's the way he was. But I told these, these detectives, I mean, they were asking me about gunplay, this and that and the other. I said, I never saw any of that, fellas, I promise you. Hmm. Yeah, but there's all these stories. He pulled a gun, he shot in the ceiling. I was not there. If I was there, I had left. I didn't see it. Yeah, but you must have went on and had a drink with him, had a sandwich. 
I never did. When I had a minute, when I was finished, I wanted to get home and see my family. I wanted to enjoy my home. Yeah. I didn't do any drugs. Our only vices were cigarettes and coffee. All of us lived on in those days, cigarettes and coffee. No more, of course. But anyway, Phil was, and I finally, I guess, I hope, convinced these detectives. I've never been called to this trial uh, as a witness of any kind. And I just, uh, I mean, it's a terrible thing that happens. I mean, it's like, you know, a close friend of yours all of a sudden is might be going to prison for the rest of his life. Yeah, it's a very strange story indeed. Uh, you, uh, Hal Blaine, you uh, play on eight records that won the Grammy for Record of the Year. Record of the Year, inclu right. Including six in a row, starting in 1960. Seven in a row. Seven in a row. That, at seven years, you play on... <laughs> that. That's really a, a, a crazy statistic there. Seven years in a row, you play on the record that won Best Record. During that time, were you just a king among men? You know, I you know among musicians, I had a lot of respect. Everybody respected me. Everybody knew me. I became famous really all over the world. Uh, my very first trip to, to England, I was walking through the, and I was still a kid. I was going to England for Richard Harris, Jimmy Webb. I was walking through customs or whatever they call it, and I handed my passport to this officer who looked at it, looked at me, looked at the picture, and he said. Are you the drummer? <laughs> and I said, yes, sir. Oh, how nice to have you here. We got, we're going to see you in concert, this type of thing. And I said, no, I'm actually here to to make some records with one of your actors, Richard Harris. And the policeman said, oh, the madman. <laughs> You're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Is that important to you? It's very important to me, yeah, because, uh, you know, my reputation really create, was recreated in rock and roll. Although I, you know, I was working with Count Basie, and I was working with, on the other end of the spectrum, with Lawrence Welk. So <laughs> it's a pretty far out, uh, pretty far out uh, reputation. So, Hal, tell me, what are you doing these days? You're mostly retired from drumming. What do you do to keep busy? I really am retired. I did, not long ago, I did a wonderful concert with Mason Williams. You know, I, I did concerts with, symphony concerts with Mason all over the country during his heyday, and I did so many records with Mason. He's a wonderful man. I did not do, unfortunately, I did not do classical gas. Uh, one of the great drummers, uh, Jimmy Gordon, did that record. Unfortunately, Jimmy wound up in prison. He's yeah. on a life-serving life sentence. Uh, well, how it's and my days are, you know, I hang out here. I got things to do. I got friends and different things where I go and do. And me and my TV are very close. <laughs> and uh, you know, I am retired. I mean, let's face it, man. I just turned seventy-eight years old. Very hard to me for me to believe how fast it all went. I mean, just boom. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, the records will be here uh, long after we're all gone. That's that's well, that I know. The, you know, I realize that the, the my legacy of so-called my legacy of music, uh, and we're talking about me, and I don't mean that uh, egotistically at all. But the the legacy of the music that I've worked on will be part of just like all the music of the '40s that was so big that they still play today they'll always play that you know all especially the grammy records you know the taste of honey and all those great records 
Strangers in the Night. I mean, they'll they'll go on forever. Yeah, they will. Well, uh, give me a song or two that I should uh, end the interview with. Something that is special to you. Something that you really remember fondly. Well, the the, the one the one was Taste of Honey, the herb that T One of Brass that we did. That we went in on a shoestring and did this, and it became A and M Records, of course, with the T One of Brass. We did all those. All those early records that are just so fun, you could hear us laughing. <laughs> well, let's hear 1966 Record of the Year, Taste of Honey by Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass, featuring, of course, Hal Blaine on the drums. Hal, thanks for visiting us with us today. It's, it's a pleasure, Michael. It really is a pleasure. It's really been a lot of fun. Maybe we can do this again sometime. Anytime. We've just scratched the surface. Just give me a holler. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. <laughs> it sounds like fun. Anytime you want, let me know. All right, have a great day. Thanks so much, Hal. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.